Good morning. How are you guys today? It is good to be here, and it is good when you're in a hurry and the traffic cooperates. We had a wonderful time of worship with Community Bible Fellowship. Thank you, Brother Lamar and Brother Donald, for going with me. And thank you for being here today. And thank you for um, just being the church that you are. Every time I go out, I love where I go, but I love coming back because that means I get to be with you guys. So to help me settle down and get my mind in the right place, um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the morning. We thank you for your word that it is alive, that it is active. God, thank you that it is good to correct us, that it is true to instruct us, that it is available to encourage us, and certainly able to mature us. So Lord Jesus, as we study this word this morning, God, we agree that it's alive. We agree that it's active. We agree that it is there for us, given given to us by you to teach us how to be more obedient followers. And Lord, I pray that as we read it this morning, that we will be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. I love teaching books of the Bible. I love to start in verse 1 and go to the back end and finish on the last verse. And today we're going to start a series on the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is one of those characters in the Old Testament. We don't always know a lot about him, but I will tell you that when you study his life, you study a man that is faithful, you study a man that not only was faithful, but a man that could hear God, and a man with tenacity to carry out a task to accomplish what God called him to do. I tell you, I'd love to give you an assignment this week. I don't often do that or make that kind of comment, but I would love to give you an assignment to tell you to read the book of Esther, Nehemiah, and Ezra. It's a trilogy there, but it tells you the whole story of captivity and God's plan and how God brought His people and God never abandoned His people even though they were in exile. The richness of this book will help us to understand how to keep on keeping on in the middle of all of it. Let me begin with a history lesson. Let me set the stage for you for God and God's people. It actually begins in Genesis chapter 12 with a man named Abram. And as you well know, there was a man named Abram who worshipped foreign gods. And God came to him one day and spoke and said, Abram, I want you to pack up everything you got. And I want you to go to a land that I will show you. And when I show you this land, when you get there, you'll know it. And he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. If you'll be faithful to me and you'll do what I tell you to do, I will give you descendants that will number like the stars. And we know from history that, that Abram went there. And we know from history that, that God said that I would show you this promised land. Eventually, these people were allowed to enter that promised land. 
We know that it had a period of wandering. We know that a lot of different things went on. And then we know that throughout that history, God raised up people. And one of those people that God raised up was King David. And King David did what no other king before him had done. He had pointed the people to God. He had taught the people the ways of God. He had taught the people to live for God. And for that 40 years, it literally was a high time in their life. But downhill from there, because after his son King Solomon died, Israel was split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom had ten tribes, and the southern kingdom had two tribes and was referred to as Judah. But because of their disobedience, the Assyrians conquered Israel. And in that conquering, it was the period of exile. And the ten tribes were scattered and became actually known as the lost tribes. And even though the southern tribes saw this happen, they too continued to rebel against God. In 586, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army captured the Jews. Jerusalem was destroyed. The walls were knocked down and the place was in ruin. The people were deported and forced into slavery again. Their history had come full circle. The city was in ruins. It had to be a traumatic thing for the Jews to see all this death and all this ruin and all that they had had and all that God had promised them and all that could have been. They had to be sitting and thinking, why me? Why now? Why us? It eventually would end and the people would be allowed to go back home. God did not forsake His people. The Persians took over for the Babylonians. And the, Babylonian, the Persians had a different way of wanting to do it. They wanted to re-inhabit. They wanted to repopulate the inhabited cities with the native people of that land. And some of the people had gone to the land and they came back. And, and when they came back, they had a conversation with Nehemiah. And he tells his story that in the 20th year, Of the reign of Artaxerxes. That he heard from God. This book of Nehemiah. Is an interesting book. It falls into several divisions. In chapters 1 through 6. They rebuild the walls. In chapters 7 through 10. They deal with the renewing of Jerusalem's worship. And in chapters 11 through 13. It addresses the repopulation and the revival of God's people. But this morning, we're going to begin in chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to begin with a prayer. We're going to call it compelled to pray. It's interesting that this prayer is one of 12 prayers. We find prayers in chapters 1, chapter 2, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 12. We see prayers of thanksgiving. We see prayers of petition. We see prayers for strength. We see Nehemiah leading his people to call on God. I can't imagine a better place for us in the time and the place that we are in the history of our country and what's going on in the world all around us than to understand what Nehemiah did that it's time for the people of God to cry out to God and say God have mercy on us and God I'm available to be used by you. And so when we begin to understand this idea we begin to understand from Nehemiah this process of prayer so go with me Nehemiah chapter 1 the first thing that we see in the process of prayer is that there was concern about the problem Nehemiah 1 1 the words of Nehemiah son of Hakaliah 
in the month of Kislev in the 20th year while I was in the city of Su- the citadel of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant, those that had not been exiled, those that stayed back, that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the providence are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And Nehemiah said, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. We know from verse 11 that Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. And I'm sure many, if not all of you, know what a cupbearer was. But the cupbearer was the man who got the benefit and the privilege of living in the palace. And he was the man that would have tasted all the wine before the king drank any of it. And if he died, that meant the wine was poisoned and the king wouldn't drink it. So while it had a lot of perks, it could also have its downside. For sure. But we know that Nehemiah never got into poison wine because we have the rest of the book of Nehemiah to tell us about it. But it says that in verse 2 that Nehemiah questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived. The word question there means to inquire or demand. It's not, oh, hey, how's it going over in Jerusalem? No. This is a man who understood the teaching of Daniel when it said to pray for the exiles. This is a man that understood that when the things around him were going bad for his people, that it was not a time to sit down and say, oh my, and don't they have a problem? No, it was time to get involved. We've said it before and I'll say it a hundred times. The further we are from a problem, the less of a problem we see. But when we walk out of these halls and say, oh, isn't it bad out there? And we walk into the street and we walk among the people. We began to see that people are hurting. We began to see that people are lonely. We began to see that people are dying and addicted. And we see all of these things. And now all of a sudden as the people of God, we're not just, oh my, but we are compelled to action. Nehemiah was compelled. Nehemiah was questioning what was going on. In verse 3 it says that he listened to the report. Then they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the providence and are in great trouble and disgrace. That doesn't mean that the grocery store was out of their favorite brand of bread. It meant the grocery store had no bread. Did you see some of the pictures of the shelves of stores with Hurricane Matthew? You literally walked in and it looked like the store had never been opened. That's a temporary thing and we go, oh, those poor people. But what we know is next week there will be bread on the shelves. But in the life of the people of Israel, those, that remnant that remained, it was not going to be back. The city was in ruins. It was a desolate place. Have you ever ridden through those parts of Atlanta that you know surely at one time were just happening and thriving and you see them now and you go, what happened? People quit caring. People said, that's not for me. Let me get away from that. But I do not believe that God tells us to get away from that. I think God tells us to run to that. 
to go and to be there and to be concerned and to understand, to question what's going on in this city. And then when we hear that the people are in distress, great trouble, broken down, falling to pieces, we need to have concern about the problem. Nehemiah was broken over the complacency. Look at verse 4. When I heard these things, what did he hear? He heard that people were in distress. He heard that the place was in ruins. He heard that there was only a remnant and they were under reproach. It says that he sat down and he wept. I ask you this morning, are you weeping for what's going on around you? Are you weeping for your nation on this side of an election? Are you weeping and saying, dear God, it's not about me and it's not about what I think is the right way, but Father God, would you show me your way? Would you show me what to do? God, would you heal our land. God, would you heal our divide? God, would you heal us? God, would you cause me to want to step into people's lives? Yes, they may be different. Yes, they may look not like me or talk like me or be educated like me or have a job like me or even believe the same way I do. But Jesus, you went to the cross for those people and you have told us to go into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in so that the house will be full. God, kill my complacency. God, let me have a great burden. Let me be there. God, let me be the one. He says when he heard the report, he hit the ground. He began to weep. The meaning behind this is he bemoaned and he lamented. Much like Jesus did. Do you remember when Jesus looked out over the city in Luke? He said he cried. He cried because he knew that the people that were going to be waving palm branches when he walked into the city were going to be yelling, crucify him by the end of the week. He knew their condition. He knew they were fair weather. We don't need to be fair weather. There was concern about it. There was a process of prayer. There was concern for the problem. says that he fasted and he prayed. Kind of sounds like maybe he took a few minutes out of the afternoon. But when you go into the original language, you found out for four months, this man wept. For four months, this man said, I'm going to do without something that I normally would enjoy. I'm going to do without it so that I can seek God on behalf of my people. God, would you raise up in this place the non-complacent. God, would you raise up those that, that when we come together, we're praying for the walls of our city. We're praying for the people of our city. We're praying for the hurting, the problems. <laughs> there was concern. Then I want you to notice as we jump on over into verse 5. It says, then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those 
who love Him and keep His commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer. Your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. There's a concern about the problem. There's a conviction about God's character. Oh, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. He lived in a world and in a time where there were many gods in many places he could have gone. But he said, not just any God, but the God, the great and awesome God, the God of heaven, the God who created it, the God who spoke it into existence, the one who is and the one who was and the one who always will be. You are God. And you're the one I'm talking to. Give me your ear there's boldness there he is calling to him he's crying out to him he's saying God my people are in trouble and you are the only one that can help Lord your servant you see that I'm your servant God I'm the one I'm here and this is a man that understood service you remember what he was for did for a living right he was a cupbearer. he was the man that drank the wine and if he died it was over And he understood giving his life for somebody else. He says, Lord, your servant. Today, are you willing to be a servant? God is not the ATM where we stick in and request and he gives back the answer. He is the God who says, I have called you. I have pulled you out. I am asking you to serve me. I gave my life a ransom for many. And what I did for you, I want you to do for the people that I put into your path. Lord, your servant. God is your servant. I declare that you are worthy of honor. You're the great God. You're the awesome God. And then he goes and he says, you're truthful. You're faithful. You're trustworthy. I'm not just trusting in something that could be or should be, but I am trusting in what is. And if you go back to Exodus 3 and 4, when Moses was trying to understand what was going on. There's an Amber Alert somewhere. Let's stop and pray for that child. All right? We done heard it twice. Now we need to pray. Father, we know that when we hear that sound, that somebody's in distress. And God, in the middle of this, we know just we can agree with Nehemiah. You're the great and awesome God. You're truthful. You're faithful. You're trustworthy. And Lord, we ask that you would do right now what we're not capable of doing. But we ask that you would intervene in this situation, that you would deliver to safety that you would cause there to be a roadblock, a stop, an, inter, an interruption that would let this child be delivered from harm's way and return to safety. God, don't let there be complacency now. We ask it, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you willing to say this morning, Lord, I'm your servant. You're worthy of honor. You're truthful. You're faithful. You're trustworthy. God, I know that when you call me to step into your life, into your world, into your plan, that you're not going to leave me. You say, I trust God. But can I tell you, the greatest proof of trust is obedience. 
obedience in the places that are not easy for me. There's a conviction about God's character. You know, something else. Nehemiah was in Susa. Now, Susa would be the happening place. It would be the spot to live. It would be where the money's flowing, the people are pretty, the houses are awesome, the streets are clean, and everything's happening. It's a good spot. He's praying for the people of Jerusalem who are living in ruin. But when he's made that confession, Lord, your servant, you are worthy of honor. He was agreeing with God, whether I'm on the mountaintop or whether I'm in the valley. You're the source. You're the reason. You're the purpose. I worship. I give myself to you in this moment. There's a concern about the problem. There's a conviction about God's character. Go back to verse 6. The Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and let your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant. The ser- your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins. We. Do you see that? There's a confession of sin. There's intensity there. He says, I am praying day and night. We know already it was four months. We know that he's not just praying, but we know he's weeping. And we know that he's not just weeping and praying for four months, but it says that he's also fasting. He's also doing whatever it takes. God, I'm intense because, God, if you don't show up, my people are in trouble. God, if you don't show up, my people are in trouble. Could we say that now? In this place, in our time, we know where we're living. Oh my goodness. God, intensity. But then there's honesty. He says, Lord, we have sinned. Not they have. Not God, look what they did that caused this. But no, God, we have sinned. We are the ones. Somewhat like David, search me, God, know me, try me, show me what's in me. Someone like David, somewhat like David, when after the sin with Bathsheba, he said, Against you and you only have I sinned. Man, there's not just a oops, God, we messed up, or if I, I hate if I offended anyone, apologies. Those are not apologies. There's a oops, I'm sorry, I got caught. But the apology that cries out, I sinned. I sinned against you, God. I sinned against people, God. I sinned against my family, God. I have sinned. God, forgive me. Cleanse me. He says, I'm agreeing. We have sinned. And there's that urgency. Including myself, we have sinned. Myself, my father's family have committed against you. We have acted wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands. We haven't done what you told us to do. The decrees, the law you gave your servant Moses. 
My mom never said Numbers 32, 23, but she quoted it to me all my life. Be sure your sins will find you out. Do you all have a story about when your sin found you out? I told you most of mine. <laughs> I can remind you of one. God sent Gail to the trunk under the mat to raise the cardboard to look under the spare tire. I still want to get, when I get to heaven, I'll say, God, how? How she do that? Yeah, but it says your sin will find you out. Nehemiah is agreeing with God. God, I've got to bring it before you because you will know it. And I'm confessing it right now. Now, what do we know about the totality of Scripture? We know from the life of David that we talked about just a moment ago where it says that God forgave, God was gracious, God, God restore me and I will be, and God, if you'll restore me, I'll teach, and God, if you'll restore me, then people will come to you. We know from 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess, now confess doesn't mean if I offended you, God. Confess means I agree with you, God, that what I did was against you and it was a sin against your word, your commands, your decrees, your laws that you gave the servant Moses and the instruction that you gave me in the New Testament. God, I agree with it. God, I will walk away from it. God, I will turn back to you. That's what confess means. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God cleanse. God forgive. So, so here we've got Nehemiah. He's got an issue. He sees the problem. He understands the character of God. We've got him in the confession of sin. But now we see him shifting just a little bit to the confidence in God's promises. Go down to verse 8. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if you're exiled, people are at the farthest horizon. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. In his confession, Nehemiah agreed that they should be exiled. But in his continued prayer, he said, God, you said you'd bring us back. God, we're in the exile. God, I'm fasting. God, I'm praying. God, I'm asking you. God, I'm telling you we've sinned. Now, God, would you bring us home? And there's some great truth in that for a nation. I don't know that we could even come close to claiming that we were in the type of exile or in living in the times like the children of Israel, Israel were at that moment. But I know that we can say, God, we're not humble before you. And God, we confess it to you. And God, you tell us that you'll bring us, you'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You tell us that you'll restore the years the locusts have eaten. So God, today we agree with you. 
we have sinned. There's disobedience that will send us to a foreign land and that is a reminder that we can return to the homeland. God, I hear the phrase, God bless America. And I think all we can say is amen and yes he has. But maybe we need to say now, America bless God. Return to me and I will show you great and mighty things. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then will I hear from heaven. There's a conviction about the character. There's a confession of sin. There's confidence in God's promises. Interesting enough, in that little short time of praying right there, Nehemiah quotes Leviticus, Deuteronomy, 1 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and Psalm 130. You want to know how to pray the will of God? Pray the word of God. Man, follow the greats. Jesus would all the time quote another passage of Scripture to give a teaching. Jesus would quote Scripture when he was praying. Nehemiah has taught us here, if you want to pray the will of God, pray the Word of God. And then there's a commitment to get involved. This is where I stumped my toe. I had to stop and say, okay, God, I'm all with you up to this point. But what does the commitment to get involved look like? We know what it looked like for Nehemiah. Nehemiah had to approach the king and say, Hey, king, you're going to be on your own with your wine for a minute because I would really like to go to Jerusalem. And this man was not a follower of God. Nehemiah was, but the king was not. And you didn't just walk in and knock on the door and go, Yo, king. No, if he wasn't happy, you could be killed in that moment. You remember this, this Esther, right? That was his wife? Artaxerxes' wife. She, had, she was the one that rose up to power and became the queen. She was the little Jewish girl. All right, I'm, I'm on track here. Okay, all right. Remember when she was going to go and ask favor, she said, if I perish, I perish. But I believe this is what God has called me to do in this moment. Now that's his wife. The cupbearer surely was in more of a precarious position than the wife was. But he approaches the king. And in verse 11. It says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I don't know, I think that's kind of interesting. Because back earlier he said, you alone are worthy of honor. You're the one that's trustworthy. You're the one that's absolute. And he says, give me favor in the presence of this man. You're the king. He's an earthly authority. My greater submission is to you. 
and I will go to him and I will follow you. And when I go to him, grant me favor. What is he asking for? He's asking to be released, to make a trip to Jerusalem, to see what needs to be done to provide relief and help to the people of Israel. He's asking what needs to be done to rebuild the wall. He's asking what needs to be done to restore the city. This is not a, hey, give me a long weekend. No, this is give me a whole lot of time. And it wasn't just a trip like driving down to exit 221. He had to get a letter. And then that letter would grant him safe passage through enemy lands. That letter would grant him position when he got inside the city. He didn't just want to do a drive-by or a flyover. He wanted boots on the ground, hands in the rubble, involved in people's lives. Can I tell you that's what we're trying to accomplish with life groups? We are asking God to raise up people that don't just have ideas, but people that have commitment to see it done. The best ideas in the world are nothing more than ideas until people own them. How is God calling you to get involved today? I believe He's a very specific God. I believe if you ask a specific question, He'll give specific answers. I believe that when you say, God, show me your way, that He will guide you there. It may not be a direct path to the final destination, but I believe that He will lead you on a journey that will raise you up. I can give you an example. Joy volunteered to play bass. From volunteering to play bass, it was a, hey, would you... um, Work with the youth band. From working with the youth band, it was, hey, we need an interim worship leader. Russell started in housekeeping, went to, la- went to landscaping, went to volunteering, went to youth, went to children, and now is in that role. May not be the final destination. Sometimes you may not have to start in the position. You may just have to start in the job. But God, I am available. People are perishing. Lives are being torn apart. Families are destroyed. Children need amber alerts. People are this and that and the other. But God, I am available. And y'all know me well enough to know if you bring me an idea, what am I going to tell you? I sure am glad God called you to do that. Right? Because God didn't put that idea on my heart. God put that idea on your heart. And there's many members in one body. And I never ask my foot to feed me. No. When God puts it on your heart, And can I tell you that if you're sitting here and God's not put anything on your heart, then you may be complacent, or you may be insecure, or maybe we just haven't built the relationship yet. But I can tell you that if God brought you here, He brought you here for a purpose, and He brought you here to get involved. 
Let's begin the dialogue. Let's begin to have the conversation. How can we be the Nehemiahs of today? How can we be proactive? Y'all know that we have been trying to stream live and we couldn't afford the cameras that made it happen. And then all of a sudden Facebook wonderfully said, I tell you what, we'll make a Facebook Live application. And then we had somebody said, hey, I got my phone. Let's turn it on. And so from last week, we had the same number of people view the worship service by Facebook Live that we actually had in attendance. So I'm glad y'all are here, by the way. Yeah. I'm really glad. Let's tell them we're glad. Let's still go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. How cool is that? We've had people that have come to church through Facebook Live. We've had people that have asked the salvation questions through Facebook Live. We've actually had people that made a donation to the church because of Facebook Live. See, it's not about do I have everything I need, but God, what I have right now, I give it to you. And so God raised us up. So we need an action plan. So what is the action plan? What can we do? This is what I'm going to ask of you. From now until the election, will you join me at 714? Why 714? Second Chronicles 714. If my people, you say which 714? Both if you can, one if you can't. But at 714, will you join me in praying? For our church, we need favor in front of the king right now. We have a zoning issue. That's a great roadblock. So, God, I'm praying for my church. God, I'm praying for my community. God, I'm praying for my nation. Now, this is what I want you to do. I want you to post it. I want you to tweet it. I want you to text somebody and say, it's 714, I prayed. care how you can do them all do one if you don't do any of those things then write a note mail it to somebody and say it was 714 and I prayed and they'll get it three days later but they'll know you prayed on that day make a commitment to be here during this series we're going to seek God's will for the future I think we're just in the testing ground I think we're just in basic training and we haven't gotten our assignment yet. I think there's much more to come. I think God's calling us. Invite friends and family to attend with you. It's time to build. Gil sent me a really cool illustration this morning. Winston Churchill planned his own funeral. He laid it out where he wanted it. He laid it out what was supposed to be and how it was supposed to be done. And there was a moment in his funeral service that in the back corners of the cathedral, somebody began to play taps. You know what taps is, right? It's over. Final, the final step has been taken. The march is over. But as soon as they finished taps, somebody on the other side started praying, playing reveille. You know what Reveille is, right? 
It's time to get up. So I don't know all of Winston Churchill's theology, but surely he sent the message that the end of life is not the end of the story. Nehemiah was telling the people of Jerusalem, exile is not the end of the story. You're hearing taps, but I'm bringing reveille. And I want you to stand up. I want you to gear up. I want you to wake up. I want you to dress up. And I want you to be ready because when I come into town, we're going to rebuild that wall. Guys, for a lot of years around here, we've been hearing taps. Oh, we can't afford it. And oh my goodness, the government won't approve a zoning and this and that and all the reasons for us to be down. But I want to tell you, in the distant land, I hear reveille and God is telling us to stand up, get up, wake up. Find the people in the community that are dying and begging and needing and wanting and hurting. And He is telling us now, you are my people in this place for this moment in this time. Don't look at the walls that are down. Look at the walls that can be rebuilt. Don't look at who's hurting. Look who's crying for help. And let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Will you rebuild is the question today. It's going to take us all. And now is the time. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more or to contribute through online giving, please visit www.mzbc.org. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear more, simply click on the Sermons tab or subscribe to the Simple Truth Podcast through iTunes. Thank you for supporting Mount Zion, where you are welcome, wanted, and needed.